Hi, I'm Anita Johnson. Just a quick request before we get started. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you catch our podcast. That helps other people find us. And of course, give us a high rating. Thanks, and here's the show. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and today on Making Contact. Period stigma and being feeling ashamed about your period, it doesn't allow you to to talk about your body in a healthy way. I mean, if you're... I worry much more about the way these technologies are changing the structure of life today already. It's been an eventful year, and before we give you our new shows for 2020, we want to take a look back at 2019. This is going to end up a tragedy is what I felt like. People should not be penalized because they have an organ in their body that doesn't function. (laughs) These are our favorite shows, the stories that inspired us, made us think differently about the world, or just allowed us to meet and interview great people. Okay, so today the Making Contact producers are going to take a look back at their favorite shows from the year. And to start, I'm going to talk about my two best shows, starting with my piece on artificial intelligence. Hey Siri, what's up? I'm at work. My shift ends in 614,977 years. Hey Siri, are you my friend? I'm your assistant. And your friend, too? Hey Siri, what's your favorite color? My favorite color is, well, it's sort of greenish, but with more dimensions. Hey Siri, do you have feelings? I feel like doing a cartwheel sometimes. That was producer Aisha Chowdhury talking to Siri, which is of course a form of artificial intelligence. And the reason I picked the AI show is because I actually didn't know much about it. Everything I heard was the sort of apocalyptic stuff about robots taking over the world and how one day we'll merge our brains with computers and the singularity, which is when computers become sentient. So basically the kind of end of world scenarios you see in movies. But here's the thing I've learned as a journalist that I cannot reiterate enough, which is that it's rare that changes occur all at once. More often, these sort of dangerous changes insinuate their way into our lives until they're so embedded that it's hard to get rid of them. So the danger isn't an apocalypse, it's that slow creep we don't notice until it's almost too late. And the real effects of technology are kind of actually mundane. And it's not that computers wake up sentient one day and kill us all, but that they're actually really powerful pattern recognition tools and really good bureaucrats. So what we talked about in this show was something called a risk assessment. And a risk assessment is basically a score that a computer program gives you based on your past behavior and also your position in society. So for example, your credit score is a risk score. And it tells a company how likely you are to pay back debt. But they're used in all kinds of places and they can have some major repercussions in your life. And there's even been a lot of discussion in California recently about the use of these risk assessments in criminal justice where the goal is to predict whether someone is likely to be arrested again or is likely to fail to appear for their trial date. 
and this informs decisions, human decisions, about how much bail to set for the person and uh, whether or not to detain them pre-trial. Yeah, so they're being used in court. What? That shocked me. But that's not the only problem. Because humans program computers and because data is already skewed, the scores the artificial intelligence assigns can often be problematic. It is the case that when these things have been studied, it has been found that people of color get higher scores as a group than white people, which causes judges to see them as higher risk. That's right. Computers can be racist. And this was my big learning moment because technology, which people keep telling us is safer and more objective and more efficient, can be just as racist and prejudiced as we are. And now that technology is exploding in our lives, I think we really have to think about what this means for poor people and people of color. And I also want to tell you to stay tuned because we have a lot more stories about big data and technology happening next year. And my second favorite show from this year was a piece we did on the cost of insulin. And this year, the price of health insurance was all over the news in a way that I've never really seen before. And there's been a lot of debate on how to fix our healthcare system. And I liked the show because it presented these two sort of opposing solutions. So on the one hand, we had this anarchist DIY group of scientists who started making insulin on their own from scratch to distribute. And on the other hand, we had this big policy solution, which was essentially Medicare for all. But I feel like the real heart of this piece was being able to talk to people who depended on insulin to survive and who fear what might happen if they one day lose their insurance or can't afford to buy it. Because when it comes down to it, we're not just talking about numbers here. We're talking about actual people and their lives. So, for example, here's Ara Aparicio, one of the women I met, talking about her experience with insulin. A lot of people think that type 1 diabetes is just juvenile diabetes. And I actually was diagnosed at 35. I was diagnosed during my pregnancy with my first daughter. And you have two different types. Is, is that both types? Yeah, so this is Lantus, the purple one. This is the one that is the long-acting insulin. Usually when you're pregnant, they do a glucose test. And for some reason, my glucose test was done at the tail end. And sure enough, my blood sugar was like in the high 500s. Target is usually like 99. And they said, we don't understand why you're not in a coma. I was hoping it was gestational diabetes and that it would go away after the pregnancy. But no, my pancreas basically just stopped producing insulin instantly. And it was an incredibly difficult time in my life. I felt completely overwhelmed. <laughs> Can I see? Oh, what's in here? Oh yeah, so this is my this is my lifeline right here. So I just have a little pouch and I try and keep things separate because this is Lantus. Type 1 diabetes is where your cells that create or produce insulin start attacking each other. So it's an autoimmune deficiency disease. Type 2 diabetes, your body does produce insulin but cannot regulate it. Some people do have to take some insulin as type 2 diabetics. Um, type 1 diabetics, you have to in order to stay alive. 
I do multiple daily injections. I have two types of insulin that I take. One is a long acting insulin and the brand name that I use is Lantus. And that gives me a base and then I have a fast-acting insulin, which the brand name that I use is Humalog. And that one, you have to calculate how many carbohydrates you're going to eat during a meal. And then you do the math and figure out how much insulin you need to give yourself. Okay, so back to my little pack here. I have my glucometer and I have my test strips that are in here. So I'm very fortunate that my husband works for the city and county of San Francisco. They have a very wonderful health plan, so I'm on his health plan as well as our two daughters. I do think of if one day my husband's not here or he loses his job, what will I do? And last night I just started having this fear dream about losing my little bag that I have that I put in my purse where I store my insulin and all of my um, diabetic supplies. And I just woke up with this terrible like tightness in my chest and feeling just anxiety about losing what is basically my lifeline. I, we're talking about insulin, but there's all sorts of other things. You know, there's the glucometer to check the glucose, there's the test strips, there's the needles. and. Other people that are on pumps, are on insulin pumps or CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, those are extremely expensive. So I'm very fortunate to have the health insurance, but it's always in the back of my mind. You know, what if I don't have insulin? There's a lot of people I've been reading a lot and hearing about people dying because they've had to ration their insulin. People should not be penalized because they have an organ in their body that doesn't function. <laughs> Those were my show picks. You can also find links to the full shows on our website, radioproject.org. Up next, Anita Johnson talks about her top shows of the year and why they were so important to her. After the countless hours that went into producing this show, Period Stigma, or what we like to say, uh, the title is Don't Let Them See You Bleed, Period. One thing that became obvious is that there is much work to be done in the struggle to end period shame, uh, also the pink tax, and transparency when it comes to the production of period products. It was inspiring to learn about the period activism taking place around the nation, being led by powerful women who are committed to putting women's health first. So again, it was just an honor to be able to tell this story and then once again bring it to you, the listening family of Making Contact period stigma and being feeling ashamed about your period it doesn't allow you to to talk about your body in a healthy way i mean if you're ashamed of your body and something very natural and actually something very beautiful and powerful that your body does and you feel you know bad about it and ashamed about it and you don't want to talk about it um and you even like disconnect with your body you know you're like this is like a thing that happens to me that's gross you're not going to feel good about yourself. Aside from the emotional changes that menstruation can bring on, periods can cause a range of physical challenges, but it can be difficult to talk about. And the silence is harming the long-term and physical health of women. Ida Salazar. You know, there hasn't been any conversation around people who menstruate and how painful it is with like endometriosis or multiple cysts and, and whatnot. 
you know, there are all sorts of conditions that afflict menstruators that, that we can't even talk about. There's a, 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 an incredible ignorance. Many women don't know what their vulvas look like. They've never seen them. They don't know um, what it is uh, when they're pregnant or when their pregnancies are failing. Um, I had a friend who had an ectopic pregnancy recently, and she did not know the process, a fallopian tube, um, you know, gathering the, the egg from the ovary and, and putting it in, into the uterus. She didn't know that process. And this is, it's, that to me is so shocking, you know, but these are, are reflective of how the stigma has snuffed our ability to explore and to understand our own bodies. And it's this pathology of silence and social stigma intertwined with misogyny that has kept women virtually mute on the subject. But the shame and secrecy around menstruation is slowly diminishing as it's challenged by a new generation of period activists. Some women are using shocking means to bring attention to the normalcy of periods, like London Marathon runner Kieran Gandhi, who refused to wear a tampon and was seen smiling in her blood-stained biker shorts at the finish line in 2015 or like photographer Sefuentes, who recently curated a photo series called Period Peace, depicting queer couples enjoying period sex to challenge the stigmas associated with menstruation. So having this conversation with my friends and then being so freaked out and grossed out about it just inspired me to make a photo series showing that period sex doesn't have to be so horrifying, you know, and that it actually can be very uh, uniting and bonding and, and intimate. For the most part, the photo series was well-received, with some criticism coming from individuals who felt period sex shouldn't be openly explored outside of the bedroom. But that didn't stop Nolan from bringing attention to what she sees as an issue of social control. Yeah, I absolutely believe that, um, you know, people with periods not being able to be in control of their own narratives, that is a form of, a huge form of gender injustice. I think that the way to rethink this and to take back control of our bodies, um, realize that this is a social stigma that we've been conditioned to think by people who don't get periods, that we've been conditioned to think because of extreme religion that sees women as, you know, objects to be owned by cis men. Um, So the first thing is just becoming aware of that. And then once you're aware of that, you can start talking about it. I think we just need to be like very vocal about it. We need to not, you know, secretly hide our tampons when we're like passing it to a friend or when we're buying it. Just be more open about it and be, be more proud about it. You are listening to The Best in Making Contact. And before we get back to our show, we just want to let you know that we have a lot of amazing pieces coming up in 2020. So make sure to subscribe to our podcast at radioproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you don't miss out on new shows and behind-the-scenes information. Go to radioproject.org and check out the Stay in Touch section. Now back to Anita Johnson talking about her favorite pieces from 2019. Hey folks, I'm Anita Johnson and I produce the Intersex Feature. People often assume that the world is divided neatly into two groups of people, that being female and male, that everyone's biological and genetic characteristics fit, you know, solely into those two particular groups. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, And I really admire intersex advocates like Sean Seifawal and Nikki Khanna for sharing their stories to help bring a level of awareness 
to the issue and the realities of intersex people. Uh, and then also really challenging uh, this social construct of what gender is. So it was really a pleasure to be able to bring this to the listeners of Making Contact. Sean Seiferwall, a black intersex man and intersex rights activist based in Atlanta, Georgia, believes the decision related to surgery is harmful and should be decided by the intersex person, not the physician. When I was born, um, one of the traits or one of the characteristics of androgen sensitivity syndrome is undescended testes. And so when I was born, there was a couple of days when they didn't know how to assign my gender. So they decided uh, that I would be raised as a girl. And But they wanted to do surgery. They wanted to remove my testes. And my mom, she just didn't feel like it was right. Um, so she made the decision that, you know, I would be raised with testes. Now, when I received my medical records at the age of 25, I requested them. And basically, the medical records showed, it's documented, it is documented that it said that the mother has been told that the child has gonads, not testes, underlined, um, and the child will be raised as a girl and will function as such. That is documented on my medical records. So I didn't know that I um, had internal testes. And when I was around 11 or 12, I had um, pain associated with my testes. And because of that pain at 13, they removed my testes. Now, up until then, I had no issues. And I think they could have actually, in hindsight, they could have just, I probably had hernias when I spoke to a doctor later in life. You know, I spoke to a doctor and the doctor said, you probably had hernias. They could have removed the hernias and you would have been fine. But they essentially threw out the baby with the bathwater. They removed my undescended testes, which is a source of hormones for me. And essentially, when they removed my testes, they put me on estrogen replacement therapy, which feminized my face and body. You know, and I identify as male now. So, again, that wasn't the right decision. Sean's story is just one of millions. Stories of parents who were not provided with a full description of how surgeries might affect their child down the road. Nikki Kana, an intersex woman and activist, says that the omission of information is commonplace and that most parents are pressured to make a decision about surgery immediately following the birth of an intersex baby. Well, I think one of the things that is the most common is that parents and the children themselves are told that they're the only one like that, that there aren't other people like this, that other people have these surgeries and have enjoyed the results and are happy with them. And they're not given information around how to contact other parents that have chosen different paths, how to be connected to other people who are intersex, other people who have similar conditions, other people who've made different decisions around their bodies. And so uh, many parents are presented with like, either you get surgery A or surgery B, and they're not presented with, you don't have to do anything. Like no is not even an option presented to them. And they're not connected with support groups. Like most doctors don't even know that there are support groups. There's been a long history of doctors discrediting support groups, referring to intersex activists as all being crazy and being extremists. 
you know? And it's not true. Like, there's this fear that, like, if you connect a child or parents with other children and parents, that there's some sort of danger in that. I mean, you would never do that if a kid had diabetes. Like, that's the first thing you would do is find support for that kid. For both intersex advocates, Nikki and Sean, the issue of choice is central. They call for patient-centered models that not only include the parents and physician, but informed consent by the intersex person whose life will be most affected. And in order to bring about greater awareness, some intersex advocates embrace the panoply of the I and the LGBTQIA as a way of bringing intersex issues to the forefront of American consciousness. Again, Sean Seifer-Wall. I feel like the LGBT community has given intersex people a platform to share their stories. Because I think for a long time, since this medical violence that has taken place, uh, that has been done to intersex people, the medical community that includes urologists, surgeons, endocrinologists, and other physicians have not supported the stories and supported the experiences of people who have had these harmful medical interventions. And so essentially, I do feel that the LGBT community, particularly the trans community, has given intersex people a voice to share their stories. So that's why I think education is key. That was our producer, Anita Johnson, talking about her show picks for the year. And finally, Monica Lopez joins us to talk about her favorite pieces. Here's Monica. Uh, My name is Monica Lopez. I'm a producer at Making Contact. In 2019, I produced a documentary called Guns and Restraining Orders. And I wanted to look at California's version of a red flag law. Now, the intent of red flag laws are to prevent gun injury and death. And I wanted to look at how our state's law was working. So in, in the U.S., we're all tragically familiar with mass shootings and the media coverage of them. So I chose to not ignore mass shootings because they are such an important focus of red flag laws, but to really highlight the everyday gun violence that happens all the time, like suicides, homicides, and in this documentary, intimate partner violence. The clip you're about to hear begins with Sophia, a survivor of domestic violence, as she wrestles with her decision to leave the relationship. And it wraps up with San Diego City Attorney explaining how the red flag law could help people in situations like Sophia's. This is going to end up a tragedy is what I felt like. And I remember going to the to the clinic and trying to file a domestic violence a restraining order. And I remember walking out. I probably walked out three or four times. I was like, I can't do it. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Like, there's no way. Like, what? I mean, this is who does who does restraining orders? Like, it's not me. It's not my situation. And I remember walking in and and I remember the director, she she grabbed my leg and she said, let me tell you something. The last girl who walked in like you is dead. And that was like, it shattered me. I was like, how am I in this situation? And, and then, and she was the other person, the second person who told me, I want you to know that none of this is your fault. Just hearing those words when you've been emotionally beat down and you know, feeling like you're the cause of of the abuse or the threats. I'm the one that broke up my family. Like, that was, like, the little ray of hope that I, I needed. Like, keep going on. 
When an abusive partner has access to firearms, the likelihood that the victim will be killed by their partner is five times greater. And even with a restraining order in place, it can take some time before the abusive partner surrenders their guns and ammunition. It could be a very long period of time, and a day can make a big difference in the life of somebody who's fearful of someone who has access to guns and, and appears potentially harmful. San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott is the most prolific filer of gun violence restraining orders in the state of California. With domestic violence, uh, if it's being proven as a crime, that's going to take some time before you have a crime. We can, we can take the gun away from an individual before a crime is proven. So that allows us to intervene at the beginning of the troublesome conduct and remove the gun. So I, th I think that that is a, that's a plus, of course, because we don't have to wait for something awful to happen. We don't need to wait for a judge to convict somebody of a crime. We're able to intervene early and hopefully keep that person safe. It became clear pretty early on that there just wasn't enough data to assess the benefits and pitfalls of the law because it hadn't been used that much outside of San Diego. It came into effect in 2016, January 1, was enacted in 2014. So Making Contact is going to continue to report on firearms and the effects of firearm regulations in 2020. So we were tasked with highlighting the two strongest shows that we produced as producers in 2019. But I wanted to highlight some other shows that were produced by freelancers or by these just under the radar podcasts that we chose to air. I really liked an episode of The Response called Fighting Misinformation in the Aftermath of the Mexico City Earthquake. And also a documentary by KALW education reporter Lee Romney she produced a documentary about the educational experience of some African-American students with special needs across the country, but focusing specifically on San Francisco Unified School District. Nearly all the Black parents in this room have pushed to get their children placed in special ed, but none are happy with the system for a whole bunch of reasons. Trying to figure out, do I go ahead with this process of identifying my son, a black African-American boy, as special ed. Knowing everything that comes along with that. That was really hard for me. What comes along with that is a troubled history. Decades of black students perceived as troublemakers and steered into categories of special ed that don't fit or meet their needs. This mom says her son's special ed plan identified his main issue as difficulty understanding directions. He's supposed to get support for that, not get in trouble. Even so... Every report card, no matter how good his grade was, everything he says does not follow directions. Mm -hmm. Does not follow directions. Did you read his paperwork? Mm -hmm. Boys are especially likely to be mislabeled and misunderstood for what adults at school perceive as aggression or defiance. But it's not just boys, says Marisha Robinson, whose eighth grade daughter is in special ed. It was just, she's a cut up, she's a cut up, she's a cut up. Like, how do we curb the behavior, behavior, behavior? And it was all punitive. Marisha co-chairs the African American Parent Advisory Council, and she's facilitating tonight. She tells the group it took her two years to get her daughter assessed for what turned out to be a cognitive issue. Maybe, she says, because the district didn't want to stigmatize another black child with a special ed label. 
but she thinks stereotypes played into it too. Of her being a black, a, a black girl or a black woman. Aggressive. She, she's, she's adultifying her or she's sassy or she's outspoken. Another mom joins the conversation. As a low-income black parent, she says, just trying to be heard around what she thinks her son needs is exhausting. I'm so tired of fighting against a system that is supposed to be erected to help my child. I'm sick of it. I don't think that we can um, move forward until we stop pretending. We've been band-aiding this for decades. And we'll be airing another education piece from Lee in early 2020. So watch out for it. That was our producer, Monica Lopez, talking about her favorite shows from 2019. And we'd love to hear from you. What were your favorite shows from the last year? And what do you think Making Contact should cover in the coming year? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. On an Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Aisha Chadri, Dylan Hoyer, Lisa Rudman, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.